This week's reading is from Job chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to be with you all um, this morning. Um, Today is the third installment of a monthly series that we're doing throughout 2018. Um, We've titled it Perspicacity. That has taken me 50 times to practice. That word is not very common or well-known amongst us, but it it nonetheless has an amazing meaning to it. It basically means the ability to understand somebody or something very quickly and accurately. And so what we're going to try to do 12 times over the course of 2018 is to be able to take a step back and to say, okay, what are some of the issues that are going on around us? And be able to kind of cut into them in a relatively quick amount of time and give you some tools to kind of understand them and ways that you can actually interact with them. Today, this third installment is going to actually attempt to to do both of those in the definition. We're going to try to quickly understand something, which is basically the meaning of life, good luck, Um, and somebody in Jordan Peterson. Um, And as, as absurd as it might sound, there's a TED Talk that Jordan Peterson did back in 2011 at the TEDx Toronto conference. And it provides an amazing kind of layout to look and examine, compare what some of Christianity's principles are with Jordan Peterson. Um, So we've titled the sermon, Chaos and Order. And it's due to the way that Jordan Peterson actually frames his understanding of reality. Um, For those of you that don't know, you can download the sermon notes to our sermons um, from the website. Um, This particular set of sermon notes has a ton of extra type of research links to it. The TED Talk link is there. Um, So it will kind of help you kind of broaden this out. I know in probably 30 to 35 minutes, it might seem absurd to try to get our head around the meaning of life and Jordan Peterson both. But I actually, I think you're going to find that this is going to be kind of helpful, I think, to all of us. Now, I'm assuming that most of you are familiar or you've heard of Jordan Peterson. Um, Last month's installation of this series, um, I referred pretty significantly to some of the comments in an interview that uh, uh, Dr. Peterson did with uh, uh, Vice magazine. And, you know, so I have a lot of respect for Peterson. Um, I had trouble actually coming up with the title on this this particular sermon, I almost wanted to just call it Pumping the Brakes on Peterson. Um, I think that what I want you to do, I want to tell you this from the beginning so you kind of know the trajectory of what I'm going to say. Peterson is an amazing person. He's saying some things that I think all of us would actually agree with, and the way he says them is actually quite refreshing. Um, But he's not all that he appears to be either. 
Now, that doesn't mean that as kind of territorialists, as Christians, we should say, well, he isn't saying this, so we shouldn't listen to him at all. I think it needs to be a little bit more major than that. For those of you that have listened to me or followed uh, our ministry here at L2 for any time at all, you know you don't agree with me a lot of times. And so I would just kind of urge a little bit of caution and a little bit more discernment when it comes to trying to assess this. Now, going back to my point, I'm assuming most of you are familiar with Peterson, but for those of you who don't, um, Dr. Peterson is the Canadian professor and, uh, and psychologist who authored the international best-selling book called 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. And he has a YouTube channel that has around a million subscribers to it and 40 million views. So that gives you some idea of how, how wildly popular he has become in the last year or so. Um, the New York Times columnist David Brooks uh, recently described Peterson as the most influential public intellectual in the Western world right now. And so this is not a small influence in your world. Um, if you don't, if you haven't, haven't ever heard of him or haven't ever seen anything, um, you need to kind of come up to speed. His influence is actually changing the minds of millions of people, millions of people and from all over the world as well. Um, in that review that uh, David Brooks did in the New York Times, uh, Brooks writes this of Peterson. He says, in his videos, he analyzes classic and biblical text. He eviscerates identity politics and political correctness, and most important, he delivers stern fatherly lectures to young men on how to be honorable, upright, and self-disciplined and how to grow up and take responsibility for their own lives. But what's most interesting about Peterson's popularity, especially the success of his new book, 12 Rules for Life, is what it says about the state of young men today. The implied readers of his work are men who feel fatherless, solitary, floating in a chaotic moral vacuum, constantly outperformed and humiliated by women. If you thought that was funny, you're going to really be in for some stuff. <laughs> I, people laugh when I'm not trying to be funny. Anyway, um, anyway, it says they're floating in a chaotic moral vacuum, constantly outperformed and humiliated by women, haunted by pain and self-contempt. At some level, Peterson is offering assertiveness training to men whom society is trying to turn into emasculated snowflakes. Hard-hitting, hard-hitting, even coming from Brooks. Now, Peterson's message is resonating deeply with conservatives and Christians alike who are basically, they're concerned. They're concerned about the direction in which Western societies are headed. However, his intellectual brilliance that is overpowering mainstream media and wrecking havoc in university campuses around the world, that is what it appears to be changing the minds of millions of people who have otherwise, would otherwise be inclined towards the PC movement, inclined towards kind of the victimhood narrative that we're seeing in a lot of the liberal cultures today. And it's even what um, Brooks himself calls the naive optimism of progressive ideology. And so Peterson is basically about ideology. 
He's a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto, and he's causing people to think again that there's consequences to your ideas. You can't live any better than you think. And it's like a hot knife cutting through butter in parts of our culture that many people have given up on. We actually gave over a lot and said, well, we'll never communicate with those people. There's certain things that we just can't do or say that are going to kind of tie us up. Peterson didn't believe that. And so it's kind of interesting when you take a step back. To be sure, Peterson is saying many things that agree or comport with Christian principles. For example, he says this, he said, uh, he tells young men that life is about remorseless struggle and pain. Your instinct is to whine, to play the victim, to seek vengeance. Rise above the culture of victimization that you see all around you. Stop whining. Don't blame others or seek revenge. The individual must conduct his or her life in a manner that requires the rejection of immediate gratification, of natural and perverse desires alike. As much as those statements appear to agree with Christian principles, should they convince us that Peterson's understanding of the human condition is actually Christian? So I think that, that's the question that I want to pose for you today. Now, in this comparison between Peterson to Job, as I mentioned already, the TED Talk that he gave in two, 2011, the title of it was um, Redefining Reality. And so it gives you kind of a very direct treatment of how Peterson understands the human condition, what reality is and what it's not. And I think it, it's especially interesting when you are able to c compare his views in general of reality and avoiding suffering in particular. When you lay them side by side with these words of Job that are recorded, they're actually the last statement of Job in the book. And the book of Job is almost universally considered to be a classic account of suffering beyond most of our imagination. And so I think we can lay these two side by side and we can actually see something that would enable you to understand where Peterson is coming from to some degree um, without having to kind of parse through hundreds of hours on YouTube. I think if you basically understand where he's coming from, you'll begin to hear it. You'll begin to see it. In his TED Talk, Peterson establishes the significance of his topic when he introduces it. He says, this is the most real thing I know. He goes on to say that by knowing it, it completely changed his own life. He then explains his belief that the quality of our being and avoiding suffering depends on our ability to rightly distinguish and manage the balance between chaos and order. Here's what he says. He says, I believe that people suffer more than they have to because we profoundly misunderstand what's real. We're blinded to what's truly fundamental by the things that present themselves most easily to our perceptions. Thus, we fail to realize what is most genuine and important. We believe that the world is made out of objects. I would like to propose instead that the world is made out of chaos and order, and that the quality of our being is dependent on how we manage the balance between the two. 
Those are some pretty significant statements. Not only does he begin by saying, this is the most important thing I've ever come to know. And by knowing it, it changed my entire life. He's able to say that people are suffering everywhere because they don't get it. That's a pretty substantial statement. Now, for the sake of our comparison, I want to actually take Peterson's definition of chaos and Peter's definition of order. And we can use those kind of like a grid through which to even see the lens, a lens through which we can see what it was that Job said right before he shut his mouth at the end of the book of Job. Now, Peterson defines chaos this way. He said chaos, that is what manifests itself when we don't know what we're looking at. It's chaos that we saw when the Twin Towers fell. It's chaos that looms when the partner you loved for decades reveals a lengthy affair. It's chaos that engulfs you when a loved one dies. Chaos is the unknown, the unexpected, the anonymous. It's the, it's the mater, the mother, the Latin root of the word matrix and material, the substance of reality. Chaos is the fruitlessness of nature and the terror of time. It's the ocean of possibilities surrounding the territory of human culture. It's the water of life bringing sustenance to those parched by their own dry preconceptions, and it's the flood unleashed by an angry god when the ideas of man warp so badly that they can no longer be sustained. It's the yin of the Taoist. It's the paralyzing horror of the darkness. It's the treachery of our own physical forms. It's the, it's the monster under the bed. And it's the snake that eternally lurks in the garden. Chaos is also what you encounter when you boldly go where no one's gone before. That's a pretty good description, pretty full. He pushes and applies it into a lot of different areas, so you pretty much get the idea of what he means. Now, when he flips it over, this is the definition he uses for order. He said, order, by contrast, is where you are when everything is working properly. When trains run on time, that's order. When you have a happy and secure home, that's order. Order keeps the operating room clean. Order is what God calls, calls out of chaos at the beginning of time and offers to men and women as a dwelling place. It's an island of stability and a sea of ignorance. It's the yang of the Taoist. It's the walls of the city. It's the principles of the Constitution and the uniform of the police. Order is the stone that lasts and keeps the barbarians at bay. Pretty interesting, isn't it? Now, if you watch the TED Talk, the, the graphics that he displays while he's describing that are pretty intense, pretty serious. Now, I want to begin by looking at Job in regard to chaos and order. And so this is going to kind of push us into the text that you previously heard. Now, the creation account, even as Peterson mentioned, at the very beginning of the Bible speaks to the issues of chaos and order multiple times. The second verse, actually, of the very first chapter tells us the earth was without form and void, literally chaotic, and darkness was over the face of the deep. 
So in the creation account, we're told that God in his creative actions was bringing progressive order to the creation. And with each passing day, God brings forth aspects of the creation in which he's ordering. Fairly simple. That, however, is not the main contrast that Christianity gives us between chaos and order. In the third chapter, there's a record of humanity's rejection of God and embrace of its own excellence. And it begins to describe a terrible curse that comes from God that binds the entire creation in chaos. All sickness, all sorrow and tears, and all death came from that chaos. But in the midst of that account, in that same third chapter, God makes a promise to progressively reorder the creation and deliver it from, from the chaos. And the rest of the entire Bible can, see is, can actually be viewed as, as the progress of God bringing about that promise. There's not as much chaos in the world now as there was before. And we should be able to say that if the Bible's true at any given time. That there's less chaos now and more order than there was before. And that poses a really interesting idea because if the progress of redemption is moving, it one day, if God fulfills his promise, it will one day give way to a world and a creation that no longer has chaos in it. There will be no more tears. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more death. And no more monsters under the bed. And so it's an interesting kind of interplay that Christianity gives you kind of in a meta-narrative, starting from its very first chapter. Now, the book of Job is particularly helpful in our comparison between Jordan and Peterson and, and, and Job, as it's nearly universally considered as a classical account of terrible suffering. But it's very significant to note how the book establishes our perception of the character of Job. Because he, he is an amazingly spiritual man. In fact, three times in the first two chapters, God himself actually defines Job as a blameless and an upright man who feared God and turned away from evil. And two times, God has said, he said that he describes Job as, there's none like him on the earth. And so what that is telling you is the character of Job in our mind's eye as we take that in is that he is the godliest human being on the planet earth. He has amazing spiritual character and impeccable integrity. And he's remarkably successful. And what makes it especially interesting is that God is the one that proposes Job to Satan. He's the one that not once but twice gave Satan permission to afflict him. The most godly human being on the planet earth. Now, the rest of the story that unfolds from chapter 3 is quite interesting because not only does it show us the, the continuance of Job's suffering 
in a physical and an emotional way. It captures and it's compounded by this bewilderment and vexation on Job's behalf that God would actually allow that. And to even make it worse, he's goaded by his three friends. They're doing the best that they can to convince Job that it's his fault, wrongly. That's the amazing setup of that book. Now, near the end of the book, in verse 30, uh, excuse me, chapter 33 to 37, there's a young man named Elihu that finally steps up and starts to tell the truth. And so that lasts from chapter 32 to verse, uh, chapter 37. And then God himself starts to speak to Job. And it's recorded from chapter 38 to 41. And the verses that you hear are Job's reply to God and Elihu's chastisement. And so there's some sort of a correction going on. There's, some, there's something that's a huge transition. Now, I'm trying to give you some easy way to look at a very, very complex book. But in the end of the day, you have to look at these last statements recorded in these first six verses of chapter 42, the final statement of Job, as the final clarity that comes into his mind. So it gives us this remarkable insight to exactly what Job thought about chaos and order. Now, in verse 2, it explains Job's view of God, and he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Those, Those words express not only Job's view of God's sovereign governance of the world, but also Job's... I knew I was going to call him Job before very long. When I was in prison, there was a book of Job and Malachi. And it, every time they said that to me, I could not figure out what they were saying. Is it, it's in Malachi 1. Is it, that's not in the Bible. It's like, it actually was. But anyhow, um, so that statement captures not only Job's view of God governing all things, it actually captures this view of a transcendent order of a magnitude that he is far from grasping in that simple statement. Now, that kind of tips the hand. It kind of shows you the flow of what's going to happen in these verses. Now, when you go to verse 3, it's, it's really interesting because unless you're paying really close attention, verse 3 be, can become really confusing because Job is, in fact, repeating a statement that God uses to rebuke him. So in verse 3, he makes this statement, and he's repeating this accusation that God made from chapter 38 and verse 2. It's one of the first things that transfers between God to Job. And he makes this statement, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And in that question that God is asking him, if you go back and look at chapter 38 and verse 2, the word for in Hebrew to hide or to make dark is the same term. And so what God is saying, who are you who gives stupid counsel because you don't know what you're talking about? And Job, when God is done with this rebuke, Job has a significant paradigm shift. And so 
he makes that statement. It's the same question that God asked of him in chapter 38, verse 2. It, it implies that Job's understanding was actually hiding the truth due to his own lack of knowledge. And Job admitted, admits as much. Because in the balance of verse 3, it says, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful or too difficult for me, which I did not know. Job is basically saying, I admit it. I didn't have any idea what I was talking about. Now, when you come to verse 4 through 6, it's in a similar fashion in verse 4 that Job repeats another statement that God had made to him previously as well in chapter 38 in verse 3. And God says here, and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. Right before God unleashes a barrage of questions that no man can answer. Certainly not Job. And after listening to those waves crash in his own mind as God asks those questions, Job admits, I don't know as much as I think I do. Now, Job's response in verse 5 and 6 captures this amazing reversal in Job's thinking from what he expressed throughout the whole entirety of the book up until here. And he said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. As Americans, we can't hardly get our head around that because it seems that we take it too literally. Is that, okay, I heard of you, and now I see you. That's not what the Hebrew is getting at. The Hebrew is getting at a radical improvement of awareness, where you just barely heard of something in the ear, and you can see it now through the eye gate, and now you get it. That is somewhat close to what Job is saying. But the real impact of it is the fact that after he makes that statement, he says, therefore, because of that, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. It captures his humiliation in learning. He had no idea what he was doing. He had no idea what he was accusing God of. Now, from a chaos order perspective, it's an exact reversal of everything that you saw in the book up until then. Throughout the book, order in Job's mind rested with Job. He had the metric, he had the measurement by which he could use against God. And chaos was with God. And here, it's exactly the opposite. And chaos, Job now knows, is inside of him. And all, all order resides with God. Now let's flip this now. We've seen... Chaos and order with Job. Let's see what it is with Peterson. Now, while Peterson appears to be sympathetic toward Christianity, and at times I've heard him claim to be a Christian, and while he appears to be sympathetic toward Christianity and other religious thought, his conclusions are radically different than the paradigm shift that we just saw with Job. Instead, Peterson makes this suggestion. He said, how might... How might a person live in reality? This is an empirical, not a rational question. Start by watching yourself as if you're someone you know very little about. See when you 
are where you should be psychologically and see when you're not. Don't think about, don't think about it. Watch, then practice spending more time in the place you want to be. You're closer to paradise there and farther from hell. Do whatever you have to stay there. Have to, to stay there. Within a month, given disciplined effort, you'll be in the proper place more often. In a year, much more often. In three years, if you're lucky, most of the time. When asked about the kingdom of heaven, Christ said, it's like a mustard seed, the smallest of seeds, but when it falls on prepared ground, it produces a great plant and becomes a shelter for all the birds of the sky. It's from such small beginnings that great things grow. It's interesting, especially in my mind, that he uses the words of Christ to show the analogy. Now, what's interesting, I think, when you take a step back is that Peterson is actually saying what Job said the whole entire book until the end. His perspective was, order is with me. See, if I, if I stay with myself, if I stay with my best self long enough, I'll figure that out. I'll, I'll crack the puzzle. I'll crack the code. If I can just hang in there enough with enough discipline, that's not what the gospel tells us. Instead of distrusting yourself in order to create room for trusting God, Peterson tells us to study ourselves further so that we might discover order and find the way by which to guide our lives and overcome chaos. In essence, Peterson is prescribing a form of humanism in which our greatest hope rests within ourselves and not with God. Now, perhaps the difference might even appear more radical when we look at what Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 3. In verse 5 to 8, this is what Solomon makes it even more stark. He said, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. You see the difference? It's like you're standing at a fork in the road. You can trust the Lord or you can trust yourself. He said, in all of your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Now with that contrast in mind, listen to the promise that Peterson makes. That if you can actually come to properly distinguish between chaos and order, there will be a balance emerge in your life. And this is how he describes the promise. He said... Meaning is not a rational phenomenon. We detect it with our being, not with our intellect, which it should guide rather than follow. When chaos and order are balanced, we have one foot in each domain. That's the meaning of life more abundantly depends on. In that place, we're secured and, conf secure and, and confident, but challenged enough to be alert and developing. In that place, we play each game not just to win, but to become better players at all games in the future. Such meaning properly nurtured can produce love for life and gratitude so deep that the terrible limitations of being are justified. It's in this manner that paradise is regained. The alternative is to live an unbalanced life, 
This is not good because the terrible forces of chaos and order will tear an unbalanced person apart. He will become overwhelmed, hopeless, bitter, vengeful, and finally, cruel. She'll become willingly blind, narrow, bored, cynical, and vicious. When life is unbalanced, people work against it because they're angry at the dreadful, limited conditions of existence. There's no way that we have the time to dissect every aspect in those statements, in those conclusions. What he says about an unbalanced life that fails to properly distinguish the difference between the terrible forces of chaos and order that will tear an unbalanced person apart, that part is patently true. If you get it wrong in how you discern and the source of chaos and order, it will shipwreck your life. Those are patently true. However, it truly does beg the question about how we discern those sources between chaos and order. And if we get that wrong, it will tear us apart. And one day we will become overwhelmed, hopeless, bitter, vengeful, vengeful and finally cruel. So what he is saying is very true, very close. Now, I believe that we should be grateful for a person of such amazing influence today to be saying many of the things that should be said. For that, all of us, I think, should be grateful. But I also believe that we need to be discerning enough to separate the difference between the meat and the bones. And if you know this base, and there are several other articles I gave in the, in the notes, one particularly by from the site called Reform Perspective and one that Joe Carter did with the Gospel Coalition that show some of the, some of the tendencies that are deeper and philosophical and perhaps more theological where, with where Peterson is coming from. And again, all I'm trying to do is to get many of you. A week hardly passes where one of you don't send me something. I follow Peterson on Twitter, and it was just this morning that he posted an article called, taken from an Australian news site called uh, Eternity News that posed the question, should, should Christians get on board with Peterson? Should Christians believe him? And he himself posted it. And so it's an interesting dynamic that we're in. And as I said earlier, this is, doesn't require us to make a unilateral rejection, but it should cause us to be able to say, okay, I can hear it now. I can hear the difference of him pushing a person inside of herself or drawing her out. I think that being able to understand that is great, helpful. I think the most important thing, though, is, is for us to be able to take some notes here. How can we reclaim the message of chaos and order? How can we actually understand it to where we can articulate it, to where a person that is truly seeking meaning, as there are millions in our world today, that they're not sent into the chaos of themselves, but they're actually given the hope of understanding true order, something with which they can guide 
their entire lives. I want to give you one brief example as I close. Say if you have gone through a deep, traumatic event in your past. Christianity puts in front of you two, an entirely different course that you have possibly in front of you because Basic, the basic tenets of most psychological models would say, you need to figure this out. Until you figure this out, this could torment you. Or Christianity would say, what happened happened by design. It happened on purpose, by God's decree. Now, some people hate that, but you see, the embrace of that would allow you to say, there's still order in it. You reject that, and it's entirely the burden of your own quest to now sort it out, to find meaning. Those are two very, very different processes because the one could actually put you into a grinder in which you're trying to sort through all the ashes of your own reflection in order to find meaning. And the other allows you to step back and to say there was an order in it, even though it was chaos on my side. It's still that order. Two very different understandings. I venture to say in 25, nearly 26 years of counseling, I've seen the latter produce a freedom that is almost, it's almost questioned because it seems so simple, or a prison that would cause a human being to spend the rest of their life trying to figure out the puzzle. All right. With, la with that, let me take a couple of questions and we'll, and we'll be done. Why would God recommend Job to Satan, subjecting him to such suffering and pain? I, I guess what immediately comes to mind is that we have a pattern with Job. I think that that's part of, even this week, as I spent just more and more time considering how the first two chapters paint the character and the development of Job that is presented to our minds. That's why I stressed it the way that I did. The fact that he was the godliest man on the planet by God himself's testimony the fact that God himself three times said that he's blameless, that causes us to conclude you can't be good enough for God to leave you alone. You can't hope to do enough to get enough stars next to your name that you're safe. Because even Job, God subjected to suffering. Now beyond that, I think what immediately should come to our senses is that we actually can see a tipping point in a person who actually believed that order resided within his own mind, and right, rightfully so. If, if he were in the room, with 100,000 people, there wouldn't be one like him. Not even one. And if anyone could say, I've done this, he could say, I've done more. And yet to see him broken, only to come through it, to say, I was wrong. The order was never with me. It was always with him. 
And I think that those are several of the reasons that God subjected that. We know at the end of the book that God restored an amazing, he brought a, brought a restoration into Job's life that established him more greatly than it, he had in the beginning. But to some degree, that's a mystery. Next question. It seems that God's answer to Job is sourced in his power rather than his goodness or love. What are we to make of that? It, it depends on how, I, I'm doing the best I can to kind of see into that question. If you take it just at the, question, at, the, uh, at the analysis of six verses at the end, it's hard to gain, I think, the proper insight. Because Job is, man, he is pissed at God for 32 chapters. He is furious at his friends because they're trying to convince him have you ever seen God afflict the righteous? Which is inferring you're not righteous, which he wasn't. But you see, what his friends are doing, oftentimes you can see, they're like a scope that you can see much of Christianity. And you see this kind of self-righteousness that is, this works righteousness is continually imposed on it. And Job in the beginning is rejecting that. And so you have this, this intense complaint that's coming out chapter after chapter after chapter with God. And so when it comes to the question of God's goodness, that is the essence, the kernel of what Job is struggling with. He's struggling with the fact that God could be good and do what he did to him. Because it's so stubbornly, it's like a, it's like a sliver driven into his mind until if order is with Job, he has every right. But if God is infinite, he has no right to question God. And that's essentially what Elihu does in his rebu rebuke from chapter 33 to chapter 37. So I don't know exactly how to answer that. It seems that God's answer to Job is sourced in his power and rather than his goodness or love, what are we to make of that? God is basically forcing Job to see that he's not God. And he does that by saying, where were you when I did all of these things? That, that role of questions that comes off of the, out of the mouth of God, beginning in chapter 38, verse 4, are amazing. There's no human being that could answer them. And he's basically forcing Job to admit that he didn't know what he was talking about. Last question. Okay. Let's pray, and we're going to prepare for communion. Um, it's always good to, to be with you again. It's always good to see you. Father, I would ask that these would be a few moments that we can understand two things, something, and be able to kind of question our own soul. What is it that we believe about reality? There's much of what Jordan Peterson said in that TED Talk, Reality really isn't in the things that most easily meet our senses. It's not things. And there's something additional to being able to see two categories by which we would say one is order and the other is chaos. But Father, the biggest issue is whether we can discern, if we can distinguish between the two. 
I can't help but think that there are people in this room and certainly watching online that tend to still think that order resides with them. And no matter what people have said to them, no matter even what perhaps you've said to them, has not dissuaded them that what has happened is not right. What has happened had no business being happening. And so they still sit kind of in the in the prison of their own logic, believing that one day if they can finally be convinced that they were wrong, they might be able to lay it down and perhaps forgive. But until that time, they remain chained in a prison by which they're trying to ascertain and find where order is. Instead of the option of just being able to say, I know you make everything beautiful in its time. As a fragile human being that is like a vapor on the earth, I'm able to simply trust you, to believe that you only allowed it for a purpose, one that indeed that I will one day be able to thank you for. That's not easy. But Father, we stand between two very different paths in this that either we try to figure it out on our own or we trust you. I pray that you would raise up out of this congregation, out of those that are watching online, people who would be very much like the ones that Peterson described, radically disciplined and committed to the changing of injustice and poverty, radically committed to helping this world be a better place rather than apathetically just standing by and complaining whining. I pray that you would help us in this. I pray these would be a few moments of deep reflection as we prepare for communion. We dedicate and commit this time to you. For we ask all these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening.